There's a chill in the air, night comes a little bit earlier, and the leaves are starting to change color. It's fall, and you know what that means. The very witching time of year, to borrow from Shakespeare. That's right, and this month we'll be looking at the history of witches. From early days in Jewish and Egyptian cultures to the Middle Ages, and from the surge of witch hunts across Europe in the 16th and 17th century, to a new resurgence of self-identified witches today. The notion of witches and witchcraft is part of our history. As Alice Hoffman wrote in Practical Magic, there's a little witch in all of us. None but witches do inhabit here. A history of witches. So, how to begin? Let's start with the words of a recent blockbuster, the All Souls Trilogy, written by historian and history professor Deborah Harkness. In the beginning of the first book, we find that, quote, it begins with a discovery of witches. Witches of old. I am bewitched. Henry IV, Part 1. According to Owen Davies, professor of history at the University of Hertfordshire and author of The Oxford Illustrated History of Witchcraft and Magic, the world has feared witches and their power for at least 4,000 years. A Mesopotamian man claimed, quote, She has given me to drink her life-depriving potion. She has bathed me in her deadly dirty water. She has rubbed me with her destructive evil oil. Clearly a problem. Records on clay tablets describe witches mostly as evil women who made images of victims and caused pain and harm, and who could transmit spells through food and drink. These ideas fed ancient theories about witchery in Jewish and Egyptian cultures, where the concept of the evil eye spreading disease took hold. In ancient epic tales of Greece and Rome, abandoned wives took revenge, young women were sexual predators, and old women cast spells. In early China, witchcraft was part of a power struggle among aristocratic dynasties, where a witch hunt was instituted when an emperor blamed his illness on witches, who were again accused of exercising their evil powers through food and drink. It's not difficult to see how these beliefs and traditions made their way into our society today. The figure of the evil queen in the Brothers Grimm fairy tale, a jealous stepmother who resents her young stepdaughter and engages in witchcraft to try and kill the young woman, appears in Snow White. The image of the apple reflects Eve and her original sin of listening to the devil, a tradition for women accused of witchcraft. The idea of poisoning the apple is linked to traditions from early cultures around the world. In the Disney version of the story, Made into a movie in 1937, the evil queen literally transforms into the old hag witch and offers Snow White the apple herself. Hag or harlot. Like a foul and ugly witch. Henry V. You have witchcraft in your lips, Kate. Also Henry V. In Henry V, Shakespeare gives us the dichotomy of the image of a witch. Was she foul and ugly or an enchantress? 
Davis points out that the epitome of the sorceress in some of the Greek epic tales was Circe, who was both goddess and witch, and who was able to seduce men and then turn them into swine. Likewise, the Roman witch could be a sexual predator who used her magic to make men fall in love with her and exacted terrible revenge if they strayed. The Roman image of the witch as the old, ugly woman spread. Horace, writing in the first century BC, described witches in this way. These descriptions are likely the ones that caught the collective imagination, passing through the years and eventually ending up on the big screen in the Snow White movie, as well as other places we'll discuss later. Witches as Bringers of Evil Tis now the very witching time of night, when churchyards yawn, and hell itself breathes out contagion to the world. Hamlet. As we get to the 14th century, the European witch was thought to be a direct threat to Christianity. Investigations included male and female sorcerers being accused of magic and using it to call up demons. The European witch wanted to undermine and destroy Christianity and worship the devil instead. As Professor Susanna Lipscomb points out, witches became a synonym for evil and transgression. The threat to to Christianity was a threat to political power as well. In the 14th century, there was a focus on male magicians and sorcerers who were using their power and magic to conjure up evil. In addition, clergymen could read, which meant they could read books of magic and understand the steps for incantations and casting spells. The possibility of magical threat to political power spread, raising concerns about members of the aristocracy as well as lowly possible magicians. Although men were in this way witches too, in Europe still about 75% of those accused of witchcraft were women. The focus on women was explained in part by the deep-rooted belief that women were inherently weaker in spirit and conscience and forever associated with Eve who colluded with Satan. Church and political leaders focused their efforts on women, who were, of course, more vulnerable to the temptation to serve Satan because they were inherently tainted. Women were also considered spiteful and jealous, casting spells on rivals for male affection. In the Titulus Regius, which explains how and why Richard III was the rightful king of England, the marriage between previous King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville was declared void because that marriage had been brought about by witchcraft of Elizabeth's mother, Jaquetta, the Duchess of Bedford. Witch Hunts The witch shall die, Antony and Cleopatra. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Exodus 22.18. The growing fear of women associated with Satan was spread with the support of the printing press. Henri Historius, the Latinized name of Heinrich Kramer, shifted perceptions considerably with his Malleus Maleficarum, also known as the Hammer of Witches, which was published in 1487. This text associated witchcraft with women who were in league with the devil. He linked traditional view of women as weak and naturally susceptible to evil to create the argument that some women were capable of engaging witchcraft to trap, seduce, or punish men, associating witchcraft with sexual immorality. The Malleus identifies sorcery as 
heresy, which made it a criminal offense. It also recommended torture, if necessary, to force confessions and argued that the only sure way to end the threat of witchcraft was the death penalty. It certainly contributed to the increasingly brutal and violent focus on witches and witchcraft. The publication included the bull of Pope Innocent VIII, which acknowledged that witches and sorcerers were a real and serious threat and were involved with Satan. Although the papal bull predates and therefore therefore doesn't endorse the Malleus, it does confirm the central premise that witches are real and working for Satan. Within about 50 years, the hammer of witches was widely accepted as the definition of witches and witchcraft. It was used in royal courts across Europe during the 16th and 17th century. The argument was simple. Satan is real, and because witches work for Satan, witches are real. It uses examples of actual cases against witches to identify the forms of witchcraft and the means for stopping witches and their work. It also describes how to prosecute a witch, offering a sort of step-by-step guide. By the late 15th century, witch hunts became prevalent throughout pockets of Europe. The hunts were designed to gather up those accused of witchcraft and hold them accountable. Beginning around 1482, there was a 300-year period where about 100,000 people across Europe were accused of being a witch. The persecution and prosecution of those accused was staggering. Primarily, the accusers were political and the prosecutions criminal rather than religious. Although witchcraft was an abomination in the church, and witches had long been thought to be fighting against Christianity, witchcraft was a crime. The only really significant exception to the political element of witch hunts was the Spanish Inquisition. As a state crime, the penalty for witchcraft was death. Most witches across Europe were hanged. It's estimated that between 40,000 and 50,000 people suffered this fate. Despite the images of witch burnings, it was only in Scotland and under the Spanish Inquisition that witches were burned. The majority of those accused of being witches were women. Although the net was cast wide and witch hunts persecuted old and young, poor and wealthy, most of those accused were poor and elderly with no ability to fight back or save themselves. They were frequently tortured in efforts to secure confessions and the identification of other people to go after. The initial accusations were typically local and simple, such as bewitching a neighbor with an illness or bewitching livestock or crops. However, using techniques that caused great pain or depriving the accused of sleep for long periods of time created a sense of confusion that led some to confess to meeting and orgies with the devil and to implicate several other women the authorities should pursue. The King and Witchcraft For all you know, a witch may be living next door to you right now. Roald Dahl the witches. One of the most active centers of 16th and 17th century witch hunting was Scotland. Historians Susanna Lipscomb and Tracy Borman have studied this period, particularly surrounding the role of King James VI, who later became James I of England. They've both written and spoken about the subject, and if you want to know more, I'll include some details in the show notes. 
One of the highest profile cases of witch hunting happened in 1590, following the Scottish king's suspicion that witches had cursed the journey of his fleet that was headed to collect his new bride, Anne of Denmark. James considered the storms that erupted across the North Sea, which caused loss of life and property, to be the work of witches, and he was determined to punish them. At least 70 suspects were rounded up. Most of them were tortured, and many confessed to creating storms through a series of spells. Some of the women, broken by torture to the point of desperation, said that Satan had appeared to them. When the trials ended, the king commissioned a pamphlet to intensify fear of witches and went on to publish his demonologie, his own work against witches. He sought to inspire greater efforts to persecute, persecute witchcraft, which he called the, quote, high treason against God. The royal authority gave this book great credibility, and it had immediate effect. Cases of witchcraft increased quickly across Scotland. James's complicated and controversial feelings about women were connected to his hatred of witches for many, and he emphasized that women's nature made them appealing to Satan. A later version of this book would eliminate any reference to male witches and always use the female gender instead. James took his fervor with him to England when he became king in 1603, replacing the milder laws and punishments that had existed in England during Elizabeth's reign with stricter laws and more terrible punishments. James is the only monarch in history to publish a work dedicated to calling for the persecution and prosecution of witches. As such, this book took on a life of its own. Although the king had intended the book to be a call for a careful process in the consideration of evidence used against witches, during the fever of witch hunting spells that followed, the demonology was used to support an anything-goes approach that included all kinds of torture to secure a confession and additional accusations. In 1612, the Pendle Witch Trial saw 12 suspects charged with murdering 10 people by witchcraft. It started when Allison Device passed a peddler, John Law, on the road and asked him for pins. When he ignored her, she cursed him. When he later suffered a stroke, he and others blamed her. Coming from a family that firmly believed in magic, Allison thought she was guilty and confessed to cursing him. She named other witches as well. Accusations spread and increased, and eventually the accused witches were held in prison at Lancashire Castle. One died in prison, and the rest were brought to trial. Ten were found guilty and hanged. Thomas Potts, clerk of the court, wrote up the event in an, ex- in an official document, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. It became very popular. The next year, the sons of the Earl of Rutland, who had strong connections to King James and his court, came down with a mysterious illness. The older boy soon died, and the younger one died as well. Six years later, by that time, Joan Flower and her daughters had been charged, tried, and found guilty of witchcraft in the case. Joan died in prison, and her daughters, Margaret and Philippa, were hanged in 1619. But the king's favorite, George Villiers, had married Rutland's daughter, and she now stood to inherit everything after the death of her brothers. 
So this involvement and Villiers publishing a pamphlet that emphasized the Guild of the Women as Witches does reveal the level of corruption that was often associated with witch hunting events. By this time, King James himself was beginning to pull back on his commitment. During the final years of his reign, skepticism took hold and only five people were hanged for witchcraft in England. But as the king turned his attention to other matters, his focus on hunting and punishing witches would remain active in England for many years. By the time of Charles I and the Civil War, the chaos in the country, coupled with the religious extremism of some Puritans, created the opportunity for one of the most notorious witch hunters in English history, Matthew Hopkins. Hopkins took advantage of the feelings of uncertainty caused by the Civil War and the tendency of people to find someone or something to blame for their troubles. He offered to help in an investigation of Elizabeth Clark for witchcraft in 1645. Deprived of sleep for days, Clark eventually confessed to being a witch and she implicated other women. At the trial, Hopkins recounted her confession and stated that was enough to find her guilty. In all, 15 women were found guilty and executed, the most convictions at any single witchcraft trial in English history. With this success under his belt, Hopkins gave himself the title Witchfinder General, dressed as a magistrate, which he certainly was not, and traveled around England offering his services in catching witches. Hopkins was eventually involved in hundreds of investigations and trials, covering an area of around 300 miles. He was paid well for his efforts, and this combined with the associated costs of the numerous executions he was overseeing, overseeing, began to cause some concern. John Gall, the vicar of Great Staunton, wrote a book accusing Hopkins of being driven only by a desire for wealth and describing his illegal activities like torture. In response to his accusers, Hopkins wrote his The Discovery of Witches in 1647, on the title page, he describes it as being, quote, answer to several queries, which is, quote, delivered to the judge for the county of Norfolk and is now published, quote, for the benefit of the whole kingdom. The title page then includes that famous quote from Exodus twenty-two eighteen: thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. In fact, the book was actually an attempt to benefit Hopkins himself, rather than the whole kingdom, by justifying his actions. It backfired, as his justifications for using illegal tactics such as witch-swimming solidified sentiment against him. Hopkins lost his status and his health, dying in August 1647, probably of tuberculosis. He was responsible for more than 100 deaths over a two-year period. Beyond what was accomplished in his lifetime, his book had ramifications in England and abroad for many years. The methods Hopkins described were employed in the trials in the New England colonies. Governor John Winthrop said the evidence assembled against Margaret Jones was gathered using the techniques Hopkins described. Jones was found guilty and executed the first death in a period of New England witch hunting that lasted until 1663. 
These techniques were also used in the Salem Witch Trials, which saw the imprisonment of 150 people and execution of 19 for witchcraft. These trials lasted until 1693, almost 50 years after Hopkins' death. Fairy Tales A witch ought never be frightened in the darkest forest, because she should be sure in her soul that the most terrifying thing in the forest was her. Terry Pratchett, Wintersmith The end of the terror of witch trials didn't mean the end of the terror of witches. During the 17th century, these figures went to the woods and became the evil heart of fairy tales. The face of evil became an old hag bent over with crooked fingers and a wart on her nose. The evil queen in Snow White morphs into just such a creature. We find another in Hansel and Gretel, where the old woman wants to eat the children. In the many in many of these stories, as in life, the character is typically alone, on the fringes of society, and angry about something. Anger is the characteristic that is shared, even when the woman begins as a queen, as in Snow White. These figures are angry and wish to eat people's souls. One of the scariest pe- creatures in children's literature is Baba Yaga, a monstrous old woman with a hooked nose and iron teeth who kidnaps children and eats them. Folk legends often include shapeshifters, witches who can turn into other creatures. In the 18th and 19th century, there are also offered often gatherings of witches, fairies, and other non-human creatures. This recalls the satanic stories of orgies in earlier eras. Owen Davies describes a German legend where witches from across the country gather on a mountaintop on May Eve to make merry, and we can assume make mischief. As we enter the 20th century, we find ourselves faced with a compelling question. Are you a good witch? or a bad witch? So asks Glinda at that key moment of The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy lands in Oz and the film bursts into color. Such a question at such a powerful moment indicates a shift. The Wizard of Oz offers one of the most frightening depictions of a witch that most of us have seen, complete with flying monkeys. But there's also Glinda, a good witch who floats around in a bubble, dispersing kindness and wisdom. The association of witches with more positive and creative magic has taken hold in popular culture and society. Witches and Witchcraft Today I think that all women are witches, in the sense that a witch is a magical being. Yoko Ono Being a witch means living in this world consciously, powerfully, and unapologetically. Gabriella Herstic, Inner Witch, A Modern Guide to the Ancient Craft Harry Potter took the world by storm in 1997, inviting us into a very different world of witchcraft and wizardry. There were certainly evil creatures, but they weren't the women wearing black cloaks and pointed hats. In fact, the most famous of these, Professor McGonagall, was a superhero of sorts, keeping track of dedicated and wayward students and ushering them all to success. 
She, of course, was played to perfection in the films by the amazing Dame Maggie Smith. And it seemed to most of us that young witch Hermione was always at the top of her class for a very good reason. She was smarter than anybody else. We also thought that, all things being equal, she would be the one to save the world. Witches had come a long way. Even The Wizard of Oz, which remains an iconic tale of good and bad witches, was turned on its head with the musical Wicked, which taught us that Elphaba wasn't such a bad person after all. It wasn't her fault she was green. And initially, it was Glinda who was the mean one of the pair. Before long, though, the two are close friends. By choice, Elphaba takes the image of the black-hatted creature, and Galinda turned Glinda, the bubble-riding rescuer of wandering Dorothy and her little dog, too. In other words, it's not just about a good witch and a bad witch. It's complicated. The 2011 publication of Deborah Harkness's All Souls trilogy, with the first book, A Discovery of Witches, reimagines that famous title and the notion of witches for a modern audience. Diana Bishop is a descendant of the famous Bishop Witches, who initially turns away from her powers, but as the stories go on, embraces those powers to save those she loves from evil. The notion of powerful women who are witches, is also reflected in society. According to Susanna Lipscomb, an increasing number of young women self-identify as witches. And the hashtag, quote, witches of Instagram, has more than 7 million posts. Brie Luna, who calls herself the hood witch, explains her association. Witches are the original activists. Anytime you have something that has to do with empowerment and being free, and being wild, and being who you are, there's definitely going to be some opposition to that, close quote. Actress Madganapkwik also makes a connection between witches of the past and women claiming power today. The whole concept of witches was that women were speaking up for themselves and fighting for their rights. The whole concept of witchcraft came into play to hold women down and reduce women's empowerment, close quote. The notion of a growing number of modern witches makes some sense to Lipscomb. Quote, Historically, people turned to magic when things felt uncertain or inexplicable. Certainly, that's a good way of defining the world today. Lipscomb goes on to say that, quote, In today's world, when money is tight, disease is rife, and many people feel politically impotent, the resurgence of witchcraft among young women is both a mark of powerlessness and an attempt to reclaim power. There are various types of witchcraft and magic in these worlds today, and various communities that offer members a sense of belonging and safety. And for some, that might be the most powerful magic of all. Why does it matter? Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. Roald Dahl, The Minipins. History shows us what's possible. Witches have been blamed through the centuries for what people couldn't explain and perhaps didn't want to understand. Cruelty, greed, fear, and desperation fueled unspeakable acts against innocent people who were unable to defend themselves. 
we have greater access to knowledge and means of communication, to science and global technology. Are we more able to work from a place of community rather than isolation, from a place of compassion rather than competition, and from a place of faith rather than fear? In other words, what can we learn from the discovery of witches? So much for joining us for an overview of the history of witches. And by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. We'll be joined by some wonderful guests in the weeks ahead, including Cassidy Cash of That Shakespeare Life, author, historian, and broadcaster, Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and author Gemma Holman for our ongoing discussion of witches. <laughs> 